Please take your Bibles and go to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21, or if you need a Bible, <clears throat> Bible in the chair in front of you, black Bible, go to the back and find page 18, I believe, page 18 in that black Bible. Matthew chapter 21, verse 23. Matthew chapter 21, we'll start in verse 23. Page 18 in that black Bible. We'll, we'll start um, in verse 23, go to the end of the chapter to 46. I decided to link these parts together. <clears throat> Thanks to Jane, Daniel, Kaylin, Travis, taking care of things while I was gone. Thank you to Jason. I heard he was horrible. That's a joke, Barb. <laughs> Barb's like, what? <laughs> so I'm never going to ask him back again. So anyways, Matthew chapter 21, verse 23. I heard he was good, so I'm glad. <clears throat> That's Jason for you. What a great guy. Matthew chapter 21, verse 23. Let's read, and then we'll jump in. And as he came into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? And answering them, Jesus said to them, I will ask you one word, which if you tell me, I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John was from what source? From heaven or from men? Well, reasoning among themselves, they said, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, well, therefore, why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the multitude, for they all hold John to be a prophet. And answering Jesus, they said, we do not know. He also said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. But what do you think? A man had two children. And he came to the first and said, child, go work today in the vineyard. And answered, he said, I will, sir, but he did not go. He came to the second and said the same. But answering, he said, I will not. Afterward, he regretted, and he went. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the latter. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that the tax collectors and harlots are getting into the kingdom of God before you. Verse 32. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and harlots believed him, and you, seeing it, did not even feel remorse afterwards who has to believe him. Listen to another parable. There was a man, a landowner, who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and rented it out to tenants. He went on a journey. And when the season of the fruits came, he sent his slaves to the tenants to receive his fruits. And the tenants took his slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned a third. Verse 36, again he sent another group of slaves, larger than the first, and they did the same to them. But afterward he sent a son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. And taking him, they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the Lord of the vineyard comes, 
what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end and rent the vineyard to other tenants who will pay him the fruits of the seasons. Jesus said to them, did you never read in the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the head corner. This came from the Lord and it is wonderful in our eyes. Verse 43. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and be given to a nation producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. And the chief priests and scribes hearing this parable, his parables, they understood that he was speaking concerning them. And seeking to seize him, they feared the multitudes because they held him to be a prophet. Fred Flights, whose former boss and current friend is John Bolton. He said this on January 27th, quote, I don't understand the name of a former national security advisor to publish a tell-all book critical of a president he served during a presidential election campaign that's going to determine the fate of the country. There'll be a time for Bolton to speak out without appearing to Try, appearing to try to tip a presidential election, end quote. Flights also said this, quote, presidents have to be able to candidly consult with their advisors without worrying they're going to leak these discussions for the media or, or get high-dollar book contracts to publish them. This book may set a dangerous precedent since it could discourage future presidents from seeking advice from expert advisors on sensitive national security matters. End quote. Now, he said this because John Bolton plans to publish a book in March of this year on his time as President Trump's National Security Advisor. Now, I say this to kind of stir the pot, you know. Now, you might agree or disagree with this, whatever you land on this with John Bolton, really doesn't necessarily matter. The fact is, though, is someone who is a representative is called to be just that. A representative. They represent or they speak for the President of the United States. They're not rogue. The same concept was with the religious leaders. They were supposed to be God's representatives, they were speaking for Him. But oh, how they lost sight of that. Matthew's gospel is shouting out to us, bow down and worship Jesus. He's the Messiah, the Son of God. He's the King of Israel. And here in this section, we can narrow down, uh, title it like this. We bow down and worship Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, the King of Israel, with humble, obedient faith or humble, obedient belief. Humble, obedient belief or humble, obedient faith. This is what it means to worship. Humility, obedience. Put in a statement for you. True Jesus discipleship, true Christianity 
is humble, obedient belief in the Lord Jesus. That's what it means to really worship God. That's what it means. And these religious leaders, clueless, they lost sight of that. I mean, we were just talking about that in the first hour. It was an exclusivity that they believed they were supposed to be on top. I mean, and you see it here. They had challenged Jesus' authority because they felt threatened. They lost sight of who they were supposed to be. Another statement, so we can do this. Learn from these religious leaders of Israel who would deny God's kingdom Discipleship is about deeds. Humble, obedient belief that does the will of the Father, which is obeying Jesus. That's Christianity. They lost sight of that. They were denied God's kingdom. It was taken away from them. And here you had tax collectors and harlots trusting Jesus. The outcasts. This controversy between Jesus and the Jewish religious leaders, it was climaxing. And the issue was Jesus' authority. And authority, they certainly did not authorize, oh yeah, that's the truth. Since he was unsanctioned by them, they wanted to know who did. Which, really? Jesus' words and works plainly showed his authority was from heaven. Why were they asking about it? Because they felt threatened. And they were going to end up doing the very thing that Jesus predicted they would do. They would kill him. And yet they really did not want to know where his authority came from because if they did, they would not have responded to Jesus in the way that they did. And Jesus saw right through their hypocrisy. Their their authority would be taken away from them and given to others. They would no longer lead Israel. It was done. And their question, which was driven by animosity and, and desire to trap Jesus, it led to Jesus giving three piercing parables to show that they as Israel's leaders have been rejected. They rejected John, and thus they rejected Jesus. They refused to do what they promised. What did they promise? We're going to obey God. But they didn't. And of those three piercing parables, today we're going to see two of them. Next week we'll see a third. They were just like this son, we'll see that in a moment, who said he would do what his father said, but he didn't do it. We asked our kids, go do this. I'm going to go do that. Why didn't you make your bed? I don't know. All of a sudden, they get brain dead, and they don't know. How does that happen? They do know. They did not do what was promised. Following Jesus is about doing what he says. He who hears these words of mine and does them, remember Matthew chapter 7? Is that the man who built his house upon the rock? Remember that? Not just empty promises. 
So I got three principles we're gonna learn from these religious leaders. So, and I put them in a, like a, you can see the religious leaders, their attitude and, and how they are, and then I'm gonna put a verse as like a, a positive end on that, on purpose, which is more applicable for us. So for instance, oh, oh here we go, three principles we can learn from these religious leaders. Number one, arrogance versus humbleness. Their arrogance versus their attitude should have been humility or humbleness. Arrogance, humbleness, it kind of rhymes. Preachers do stuff like that. Anyways, that's what I learned from the conference. Just kidding. Verse 23. He came into the temple, chief priests and elders, they're in charge of the temple. And how Jesus had acted, remember the triumphal entry, um, cleansed the temple, healing the sick. It displayed a higher authority than their own. So, so who gave it to him? They, the elders, uh, religious leaders, chief priests, they authorized teachers. So what were his credentials? Who sanctioned him? By the way, elders, they were members of the Sanhedrin. Uh, chief priests, the priests were the, of the high priest family. Chief priests, elders, you'll see the Pharisees, all of these, they, they all fail, both failed to see that all of Jesus' words and works testified to his true identity, a failure they willingly did not want to see. Notice the question. By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? Obviously, they're trying to trap him. Because if he said, well, this guy or whatever, some human, well, that human that he named off is inferior to them, to their status, because they're the religious leaders. But if he said from God, well, then they can accuse him of blasphemy. So they're trying to trap him. So what does Jesus do? He turned the tables on them. Look at verse 24. I will ask you one word, which if you tell me, I'll tell you also about what authority I do these things. Answer my question, I answer yours. John's baptism was from what source? Heaven or men? Their attempt to trip Jesus had failed. Oh, the tide had turned. And they're in a quandary. Notice there in verse 25. Reason among themselves, we see from heaven, their disbelief would be exposed. Well, pfft, I don't want that to happen. Well, if we say for men, all the people get mad at us. Why? Because they thought of John as a prophet. All these people from all over the Roman Empire, they heard about John and they considered John to be a prophet. Verse 27, answering, we don't know. They claimed ignorance which in essence betrayed what they really thought about John what do you think about John he was a farce he was a nutcase they did not affirm John in his ministry they refused to believe John and Jesus knew that their answer was a sham one writer put it like this quote if they cannot tell whether God was at work in John the Baptist, they are not competent to question and judge Jesus. End quote. That's so true. See, neither side was um, politically practical. 
Notice Jesus, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. I won't tell you by what authority I do these things, which really does show the source of his authority, right? In that, Jesus subtly affirmed John and his ministry being likened to his own. And thus, Jesus' authority was from the same source as John's authority, from God. He nails them right here. And then he's going to drive it home farther. But before I do that, just a small point I want to bring up. A great lesson for us. We come to God with humility, not with arrogance. We got to remember God is so gracious to us. Who did they think they were? The arrogance. They, they, they position themselves before God. Friends, we deserve nothing from God. He's given us such grace, hasn't he? Great lesson for us to learn. Arrogance versus humbleness. Number two, another one. Emptiness versus performance. Emptiness versus performance. Notice verse 28. Here's the first parable. He gives them three piercing parables. The first one is here. What do you think? Two children, came the first, go work today. He says, I will, and then he doesn't go. Came to the second, says the same thing. He says, I'm not going to go, but then he goes. And I think in some versions, some manuscripts, they have it backwards. He says, I won't go, but he does. You know, it's, whatever. The point's going to remain the same. But Jesus is doing this to show they truly have rejected his authority, and he's exposing their unbelief. So the point is, he's trying to say when he gives this story, son says no, but then he says he's going to go. The other son says, okay, I will go, but he doesn't do it. What's the point? Do what is right and not just talk about it. Just having empty words but no practice behind it. That's the point. Or another way to put it, Good intentions don't matter. What matters is our actions, which truly show what's real and genuine. Our actions should match our words. What counts, as one writer put it, is not promise, but performance. And we don't mean performance in terms of the sense of going through the motions. That's not what we're talking about here. But performance in the sense of doing versus just talking about it. Not that words don't matter, Jesus had brought that up earlier that they show the heart. But he's really trying to make an emphasis because one part they say, I'm not going to go, but then they do it. The other part says, oh yes, I will go. We're going to go do it. There was nothing but empty promises. They did not do it. These fake religious leaders had a lot of words, blah, 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 but no obedience to God in his word. Notice what Jesus does. Look at verse 31. He's going to nail him here. Verse 31. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said the latter. He asked them to respond as a way for them to condemn themselves. Their unbelief was just like the son who said, Yes, I will go, but didn't do it. Who did? Notice what Jesus says. 
Truly I say to you that the tax collectors and the harlots are getting into the kingdom of God before you. See, they promised to work in God's vineyard, but they did nothing. All they gave were empty promises. In contrast to that, the tax collectors and harlots believed John. They initially refused, but later they repented. Because he says in verse 32, for John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and harlots, they did believe him. One writer said this about the tax collectors and the harlots. He called them the no-hopers. These were no-hopers. Uh, they were outcasts due to the way, of their, the way of their living, the way they lived their lives. So what do they need? They needed hope, grace, mercy. And when called to repent, it was these no-hopers who responded to John. It was these no-hopers who repented and believed John's message. See, these kinds of people were cut off from the religiosity that was central to the chief priests, the elders, and the Pharisees. These ones responded to the message of the kingdom more openly than those who held to their religious observances of their religious establishment. Oh, we just follow the law. We just go down our legalistic type tendencies and we're just fine. We better you, you harlots and tax collectors. You're, yeah, get out of here. It was these religious leaders. They didn't cause a huge scandal. They just easily, they conveniently went through their outward motions of religiosity. But they were the ones that were guilty of not responding to the demand of wholehearted repentance and true dedication to God by belief in Jesus. They were a sham. They were liars. And here you see the most notorious, blatant Jewish sinners who would repent and believe they entered God's kingdom before these leaders. These leaders who would not repent. These responded to John's call to repent and they changed their whole way of living. And the leaders just balked at John. They thought he was a crazy nutcase. These leaders who should have represented God. That's what they were, they were called to do. They were called to represent God. They weren't doing that. Remember how Jesus says, John came in the way of righteousness, but the leaders rejected him. The way of righteousness denotes life and obedience to God's word. Remember that. That's going to come up again in the next parable, parable of the wicked tenants. Denotes life and obedience to God, which the leaders did not do. The leaders didn't do that. They were like that fig tree. Remember the fig tree? Just had leaves. 
And Jesus walked up to it because it looked like it had fruit. He was going to pick the fruit. There's no fruit. No fruit at all. And you know something? Even the changed lives of tax collectors and harlots, that didn't even phase them. Look at the next part. Look at here. The next part, verse 33. Excuse me, verse 32. And you, seeing this, did not even feel remorse afterward so as to believe him. What's he saying? These leaders, they should have learned from the example of the tax collectors and harlots. But instead of learning from them, their arrogant pride kept them from believing John and thus believing in Jesus. I mean, when you see someone who responds to Christ, doesn't that excite you? When you see someone who, who is walking in the path of, of of wickedness, and yet they, their life just changes. I mean, this should excite you, right? You, you don't go like, oh, that's horrible. Get out of my face, man. I don't want to be around you. You'd be like, what's wrong with you? You don't say stuff like that, right? You don't act like that. That's exactly the way the religious leaders are acting. They had no remorse. They didn't care about tax collectors and harlots. Their whole life's changing. It didn't even face them. What? And these, these guys was Israel's leaders? Not only did they not repent and believe John, they didn't feel one ounce of remorse when they saw tax collectors and harlots repent and believe. This showed the darkness of their hearts. At the end of the day, one writer puts it like this, quote, discipleship is fundamentally about deeds, end quote. With all the knowledge that these leaders had of the temple, the Old Testament, they shockingly did not obey the Father's will. Even more shocking. Even more shocking is that God's grace calls and saves the most hideous, notorious sinners who will repent and believe. These will truly enter God's kingdom because they humbled themselves before God, because they responded to the gospel. God calls us as Jesus followers to persevere in the faith and he calls sinners to repent and believe. It just goes to show you that entrance into God's kingdom is promised not just to those who say it, but to those who actually respond to Jesus. That's why it comes down to this. The unrepentant religious establishment, Israel's religious leaders, they would be replaced by a non-status, repentant, Jesus-believing group of people for starters, the 12 band of these renegade type riffraffs, his disciples. Israel's leaders and the people, they're going to pay severely for rejecting their Messiah. All would end up suffering. Israel as a nation would be hardened to the gospel so that the fullness of the Gentiles may come into the kingdom. That's what we just read in Romans chapter 11. 
but it would be Jesus' 12 disciples who would pave the way for it, the foundation for the church, which leads us into the last point for us to learn. Defiance, or you can even use the word obstinance versus compliance. Compliance or obedience. Defiance versus compliance. Obstinance versus obedience. Jesus gives the second parable, the parable of the wicked tenants. Reminiscent of Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Yet Jesus changes a little bit of the things here from Isaiah chapter 5. So again, defiance versus compliance. Or if you want an O word, obstinance versus obedience. You see the, how the leaders were responding versus how they should have been responding. And Jesus does this by telling a story. Let me give you um, kind of the correlation between the peoples that he's using in the story, how it correlates within the Old Testament. The father is the landowner. Israel is the vineyard. The religious leaders are the wicked tenants or wicked vine growers, I think you have in your translations. The slaves represent the prophets. And of course, Jesus is the son. And I put there, it's a mini Old Testament. It's a mini little picture of the Old Testament. That's exactly what this story is. Three times a landowner. He acted to try to obtain fruit from the vineyard. Fruit stands for right living or right obedience to God. Remember when Jesus mentioned that in the first story? The way of righteousness. The landowner wanted to receive his share of the fruit which stands for right living or right obedience to God. But these religious leaders did not display that fruit of obedience. They would end up killing God's son as a way to retain their authority. Jesus as the son was the final culmination of the father and the people rejecting Jesus was their final rebellion. Notice how God was extremely patient with the leaders of his people who were consistently rejecting the messengers, the prophets. But he wanted the fruit. The landowner was calling for the fruit, which again, the fruit equals life and obedience to God and his word. And yet notice He says here in verse, what was it, verse 35. The tenants took the slaves and beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. He sent a second group. They did the same thing to them. These defiant, disobedient, obstinate tenants refused to give the fruit to the landowner, which was his land. They thought they owned the vineyard which stood for God's kingdom blessings. They had failed to remember God's grace. God was gracious to Israel. Israel didn't deserve any of this stuff. The religious leaders didn't deserve any of this. God was showing his grace to them. Israel was the vineyard, excuse me, God's kingdom blessings was the vineyard. It was there. They were supposed to give it to him, but they took it for themselves. God will replace these obstinate tenants with new true ones. The mistreatment, by the way, of the landowner's slaves depicts Israel's constant rejection of God's prophets in the Old Testament. Notice, God is a kind, patient, compassionate God who showed mercy to these rebels. 
three different times. And the third time he says, I'm going to send my son. They will respect my son. Notice, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. Verse 39, taking him, they threw him out of the vineyard, which depicts Jesus being killed outside of the city of Jerusalem. And they killed him. Verse 40, when the Lord of the vineyard comes, what will we do to those tenants? He asked them this and they walked right into their own judgment. Their own words would condemn them. Notice, they said, he would bring those wretches to a wretched end. Yep, exactly. Verse 42, Jesus said to them, have you never read the scriptures? He quotes Psalm 118, verse 22. You're ignorant. But they proclaim to know the scriptures so well. Did they really not read it? Of course they've read it. But did they really read it? The builders had rejected the stone which became the foundational cornerstone, which is Jesus himself. And this stone would be the the corner of two walls, so not only would it count as like the foundation, like the piece as they laid the foundation, but it would set the position of the whole rest of the building. Jesus was the head corner. And notice, this came from the Lord, and it's wonderful in our eyes. It's marvelous in our eyes that God has done this. And here comes them one of the most debated passages in Matthew's gospel, if not in the whole Bible. Verse 43, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and be given to a nation producing the fruit of it. To whom does this refer? Does the church replace Israel? Not exactly. The kingdom will be taken away from defiant religious leaders and given to a nation who will lead the church. They will comply and be obedient to God. Jesus' 12 disciples would be the foundation upon which the church would be built with Jesus as the head cornerstone. Jesus just mentioned that to his disciples in Matthew chapter 16. The kingdom was taken away from these leaders. It will be given to those who produce the fruit of it. And even if you say the church replaced Israel, it would only be temporary. Since Israel nationally will be grafted back into the branch with one people of God. That's why we read Romans chapter 11. But all in all, it seems Jesus referred to the leaders, not to Israel as a whole. The leaders were the most to be blamed for the, way, for the, for the waywardness of the people, the people being wayward themselves. Not only did they not enter the kingdom, these leaders, they prevented others from entering the kingdom. You'll see this in Matthew chapter 23 when Jesus will condemn the Pharisees, the scribes, the hypocrites because they will prevent people from entering God's kingdom. And then look at verse 44. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces but on whomever it falls it will scatter them like dust. Anyone who rejects this cornerstone 
are the ones who would stumble over the stone and fall. They'd be broken into pieces, grounded to dust for their defiant, disobedient attitude. This is a warning of judgment that would come to the temple, to the temple establishment, as well as all the people of Jerusalem. From 70 AD, that temple that they were in would be totally destroyed. And yet, do you see the hint of mercy? Notice the hint of mercy. It says, he who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces. So if you fall on the stone, you will be broken, but you can be healed. But if it, that stone, or he, falls on you, you'll be grounded into dust. You will face his judgment which is why you should come, which is why you should repent, which is why you should trust Jesus today. Yes, he'll break you. Yes, you'll be broken. Yes, he will humble you, and yet he will restore you and heal you. He will save you. He'll forgive you of all your sins. You'll be reconciled to God. Don't respond the way these religious leaders did. Don't be arrogant don't have emptiness and obstinance towards God. Don't resist Him. Trust Him. Let it down, let it go, and come to God. And notice the religious leaders, they understood this, verse 45. When they heard this parable, they understood that He was speaking concerning them. They knew, contextually, this is referred to religious leaders, they recognized Jesus directed this parable at them. Not the people, not Israel. Which is why, notice in verse 46, they were seeking to seize him just like Jesus had predicted in the parable. And they're going to do it, right? They're going to kill him. Yet they feared the crowds because they held Jesus to be a prophet. All these people were enthusiastic about Jesus. They're going to arrest him now? I doubt it. So they stopped short of doing that. You know, that fig tree illustration earlier in chapter 21, it kind of lies in the background of what would happen next with the religious establishment, questioning Jesus' authority. They didn't believe John, which means they wouldn't believe Jesus. In opposition to the tax collectors, in opposition to harlots, these notorious sinners. And yet the fruit they were to yield, which is right living, obedience to God, barren, so the place of authority will be taken away and it will be given to those who would rightly lead God's people by building upon the head cornerstone, building upon Christ. So learn. Learn from these religious leaders who were denied God's kingdom. Discipleship is about deeds. Humble, obedient belief that does the will of the Father. Obeying Jesus. Humbleness. Performance. Compliance. Obedience, that's discipleship. Learn these truths from these religious leaders. Learn these principles from God's word, from what happened to them and their arrogance before God. True Jesus discipleship, true Christianity is humble, obedient belief in the Lord Jesus. That's what it means to really worship him. Go all through the motions, but right living before God 
because he's been so gracious to us. You're so amazed over his grace to you, you just can't help but respond in worship. And so help us, Father, help me, help us all to be so overwhelmed with your grace towards us that that grace would be the thing that spurs us on not to obstinance, not to defiance, not to arrogance, not to emptiness, but in compliance, obedience, submissiveness, humbleness, doing your word. Work in us, we pray. We ask that you, Father, would do that by your spirit in our hearts. Bring true worship. I encourage you this time as we normally do each Sunday a time of silence for you to think and to ponder that you allow God by His Spirit to apply these truths to you. Maybe taking time to pray. Maybe reading through notes. Whichever the case may be, and we have our um, forms. We do a time of giving. We'll sing. We'll pray. We do those things which are good. We should do those things. Those are ways that we can worship God. And yet remind yourself of the gospel truth. Remind yourself of God's grace to you. And let your mind dwell on these things. May it spur you on to, to respond the way harlots did, to respond the way tax collectors did, the hated, despised outcasts of Israel. With humility, submissiveness, and obedience to our Lord, because we just love Him, we're so amazed of His grace. So take a few moments to do that.